Let's open our Bibles tonight to Deuteronomy chapter number 12. Deuteronomy chapter number 12. This is the fourth message in a row that I have not preached a series. Amen. And, uh, but we have just been sort of preaching around this portion of the Word of God and noticing some thoughts that seem to be a little bit similar. And about the time we finish it, then we might call it a series. But until then, we're just sort of preaching a little bit. Amen. Deuteronomy chapter number 12 tonight. I'd like to begin reading in verse number 1. Deuteronomy chapter number 12, verse number 1. Now Moses is speaking to the children of Israel, and uh, the Word of God says this, These are the statutes and judgments which ye shall observe to do in the land which the Lord God of thy fathers giveth thee to possess it all the days that ye live upon the earth. Ye shall utterly destroy all the places wherein the nations which ye shall possess served their gods upon the high mountains and upon the hills and under every green tree. Ye shall overthrow their altars and break down their pillars, burn their groves with fire. Ye shall hew down the graven images of their gods and destroy the names of them out of that place. Ye shall not do so unto the Lord your God, but unto the place which the Lord your God shall choose out of all your tribes to put his name there. Even unto his habitation shall ye seek, and thither thou shalt come. And thither ye shall bring your burnt offerings, and your sacrifices, and your tithes, and heave offerings of your hand, and your vows, and your free will offerings, and the firstlings of your herds, and of your flocks. And there ye shall eat before the Lord your God, and ye shall rejoice in all that ye put your hand unto, ye and your households, wherein the Lord thy God hath blessed thee. Ye shall not do after all the things that we do here this day, every man whatsoever is right in his own eyes. For ye are not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance which the Lord your God giveth you. But when ye go over Jordan and dwell in the land which the Lord your God giveth you to inherit, when he giveth you rest from all your enemies round about so that ye dwell in safety, then there shall be a place which the Lord your God shall choose to cause his name to dwell there. Thither shall ye bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices and your tithes and the heave offering of your hand and all your choice vows which ye vow unto the Lord. Ye shall rejoice before the Lord your God, ye and your sons and your daughters, your men servants and your maid servants and the Levite that is within your gates, forasmuch as he hath no part nor inheritance with you. Take heed to thyself, that thou offer not thy burnt offerings in every place that thou seest. But in the place which the Lord shall choose in one of thy tribes, there shalt thou offer thy burnt offerings, and there shalt thou do all that I command thee. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you for this night. We thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for what you have already done in our midst. I pray, Lord, that each and every heart would be touched by the preaching of thy word tonight. What an impossible task it is, Lord, for one man to preach and for a group this size for every heart to be touched. But, Lord, I'm not asking you to help me do it. I'm asking you to do it. I'm asking for the Holy Ghost to take his word and wield it effectively in our hearts and minds and to deal with us after thine own will and thine own good pleasure. We'll be sure to thank you for what transpires. Help us to be obedient tonight. Lord, help us to be uh, perceptive tonight. And help us, Lord, to do serious business with heaven that you might receive glory out of our lives. Lord, we love you and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I want to remind you that in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, the book of Deuteronomy is the remembrance of the law. 
Moses, just before the uh, children of Israel brought into the land of Canaan, is tasked by the Lord with rehearsing into the ears of the Israelites both their history of wanderings as well as the commandments that God had given at Sinai. And that's what the name Deuteronomy means. It means the repetition or retelling of the law. It's interesting to me what a great emphasis that God puts on the topic of remembrance. Uh, God knows how prone we are to forget what He's done in our life. And so He consistently prompts His people and implores His people to not forget the good things that God has done for them. Not forget the mistakes that they make. Not forget the spiritual lessons that they've learned. We are a forgetful people, and if we're not careful, we will allow distractions in the devil to rob us of much of what God has done in our lives, just simply through our forgetfulness. And so the book of Deuteronomy is written to remind Israel of some things. The first thing it reminds them of is that they are a purchased people. The story begins with them in Egypt and them in bondage. But God, through the blood of the Passover land, uh, breaks the bondage, breaks the hand of Pharaoh in the land of Egypt and brings the children of Israel out of the land. They are shielded by the blood of that Passover lamb. While all the firstborn in Egypt are slain, God purchases through that blood Israel unto Himself as a people afresh and Anew. Let me say, man, I'm thankful for the day that I got purchased by the Lord. Uh, isn't it a beautiful thing that the first thing God does is He calls Israel out from amongst the nations, but then they sell themselves into slavery, so He goes back in and He purchases them through the blood. What a picture that is of what God has done for humanity at large. God creates humanity, puts him in a perfect condition, in a perfect garden, gives him a perfect environment. What does man do? Mankind sins. So uh, the, God sends His only begotten Son, the Lamb of God, who through His shed blood purchases afresh and anew fallen man unto God to restore him to a place of fellowship. I'd say this, just like they were a purchased people, if you've been born again tonight, you've been born again and bought uh, not with corruptible things as silver and gold, uh, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot and without blemish. They're reminded that they are a purchased people. And then they are uh, allowed to leave uh, Egypt, though they deserve to die as much as any Egyptian in that land. Because of the blood that had been shed, they are pardoned and permitted to leave. You know the difference between the uh, Jewish families and the Egyptian families that night in Egypt was not that one was Jewish and one was Egyptian. It's that one had the blood over their doorpost and the other one didn't. Can I tell you, there's a lot of things that are important to this world that are unimportant to God. But the thing that's important to God, though it may not be important in this world, it is the most important thing for every man uh, to consider, has the blood been applied to my heart and to my life? So God pardons them. He reminds them they were a purchase and a pardon people. And then you can imagine this, this caravan of two and a half million people uh, that have left out. They are slaves. They are, they are ragged people. They are people that have been hard used in life. And they leave out from the land of Egypt and they are traveling across the wilderness. They are led by this mysterious man by the name of Moses. He has a spokesman by the name of Aaron, his brother. And uh, this Moses who travels constantly with a veil over his face because it glowed with the very glory of God. This caravan is led by a pillar of fire or a pillar of cloud depending on the time of day. What an odd spectacle this must have been. 
It is no wonder that when the uh, Canaanites heard the children of Israel were coming, that their hearts melted. When you hear about the great works that God had done and how the Egypt, by the way, being the dominating world power of its day, had been laid low by the God that these people worshipped. Man, they were a peculiar people. And you would, if you had looked at them, you would have thought, what a strange, what an oddity, what a spectacle that these people are. Man, that reminds me of what God's done in our life. He saved us that we might be a peculiar people zealous of good works. Uh, people say, well, preacher, you know, if I live like a Christian, people will look at me like I'm different. Good. You should be different. There should be a distinction to your life. You shouldn't fit in with this world system. Uh, very often we feel out of place. Do you ever just feel like you're out of place? We should feel out of place with this world system. We are a peculiar people as they were. And then they were promised people. They went in the strength of this promise that God had given to Abraham that God was going to give them the land of Canaan. The thing that strengthened them was not their present condition, but it was their prospective covenant. They looked forward to the day when God was going to bring to fruition the promises that He made. And that reminds me of how we're to be living today. Very often we live rife with discouragement and and anxiety and worry and fear. And that's because we're focusing on our present condition instead of the promises that God has made to us. i got news for you. We shouldn't be living for this world. This world shouldn't satisfy us. We shouldn't find all we need in this world. Rather, we should be looking to the world to come. But when we come to these passages in Deuteronomy, we find that God has not only revealed that they are a purchased people and a pardoned people, a peculiar people and a promised people, but they are now commanded to be a prudent people in the way that they live. On ten separate occasions, they are commanded in the book of Deuteronomy using a phrase. We read it tonight in our text. Verse number 13, uh, God uses it. He says this, take heed to thyself. Uh, On ten separate occasions, God commands the children of Israel to take heed in their lives. Now, what does the phrase take heed mean? Well, it basically has three meanings. Let me share them with you. One, if you told someone to take heed, you would be telling them to give attendance to a matter. Uh, When you're telling someone to take heed, very often you're saying, hey, tend to this, see to this, give your time and attention and focus to this. We're saying be careful not to neglect the performance of this thing. The example that I've given, of course, it's tax season right now. Uh, and uh, there's people that might forget to do their taxes. I'll tell you, this is one of the great government services we have. If you forget to pay your taxes, don't worry, they'll let you know. You don't have to worry about that. Uh, they'll come and find you wherever you're at and make sure you are aware that you owe taxes. I got good news for you. If there's any, if you're trying to get a hold of any government agency and you can't get a call back, just don't pay your taxes. The government will call you. Amen. Uh, they still might not be able to help you, but if you're just wanting to talk to them, they'll get you on the phone. And so uh, we might warn someone to take heed that they do their income taxes. We're saying don't neglect that. Don't ignore that. Don't miss that. So it means to give attendance to a matter. But then when we say to take heed, very often we're commanding people and imploring them to give reference to a matter. For instance, the word take heed might be used purely as a warning. We might say take heed in the way that you drive. Take heed in the places that you go. Take heed in the people that you associate with. And what we're saying is be mindful and respectful of the danger that awaits you. Do not be flippant in the way that you approach this matter. And likewise, the Lord is imploring the children of Israel to be careful about some things, to take heed in some things. But then there's a third way. If we told someone to take heed, we might be commanding them to give diligence to a matter. 
So we're not just saying don't ignore it. And we're not just saying weigh the consequences and the importance of it. But when we say take heed, we might be commanding someone to be particularly careful and diligent in the way they carry out something in their life. In other words, we're telling them to not do it casually, to not do it flippantly, but to pay attention to whatever you're doing. We were uh, doing a little bit of work yesterday and uh, Brother Brandon was having to hold a flashlight and he told me, he said he still has PTSD from growing up getting yelled at for holding a flashlight wrong. Any of y'all experienced that? <laughs> There's no right way to hold a flashlight when you're under 30 years old, all right? No matter how you're holding it, you're pointing it the wrong direction, you're shaking it, something uh, is going on. And, and, and very often I remember being a child and having to hold a flashlight or get tools for my dad or something like that, and he would tell me to be careful in what I was doing, take heed. He wasn't saying be careful because you're going to injure yourself. He was saying be careful that you do it correctly because it's an important task that demands your full attention. Having these three definitions in mind, we can look down at these commandments that have been given in the book of Deuteronomy, and we find that they are rich with pertinent, relevant meaning for the lives that we are living. For instance, we've already looked in chapter number 2, the children of Israel have been commanded to take heed in the matter of secular relationships. They're commanded to be cautious in how they interact with the secular world around them. Let me just remind you, you are going to interact with the world around you. You're going to have secular relationships. And what I mean by that is you're going to have to go get loans. You're going to have to carry out business in your day to day. You're probably, if you work on a public job, you're going to have friends in the workplace. You're going to have to build associations with people. God doesn't begrudge any of those things. But as a child of God, we better be careful with those relationships and we better recognize the pitfalls that exist within them. He then commands them to take heed in chapter 4 in the matter of steadfastly remembering. He says, take heed that you forget not some things. And, and really in keeping with the whole theme of the book of Deuteronomy, he reminds us how frail and how fragile and how fallible our memories are. If we don't record some things in our heart, if we don't galvanize them in our soul, we'll forget what God has done. Chapter 11, he warns them concerning the matter of straying religiously. He says, take heed lest when you've been in the land for a long time, you turn away from the true God. You turn aside and begin to follow and worship other gods. Everybody in this room would say, preacher, that never happened to me. Uh, but everybody that it's ever happened to has at some point said it would never happen to me. It could happen to you. It could happen to me. It doesn't matter who it is. If we don't guard our hearts, we can find ourselves being drawn away from affection and devotion to the Lord. But now in our text tonight, verse number 13, we find a new one of these take heeds. And I found this particularly fascinating. Look down at verse number 13. The Bible says this, Take heed to thyself that thou offer not thy burnt offerings in every place that thou seest, but in the place which the Lord shall choose in one of thy tribes, there thou shalt offer thy burnt offerings and there thou shalt do all that I command thee. In our text tonight, we could say this, that they are warned in the matter of sacrificing recklessly in their life. So, preacher, what do you mean tonight? Well, they're warned against worshiping just anywhere. Can I tell you, there is a, 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 a thought, a theme, a movement, a spirit in modern day Christianity that is summarized in this idea. Oh, I can worship God anywhere. Have you ever heard someone say that? I can worship God anywhere. I can worship Him at the lake. I can worship Him at the golf course. I can worship Him 
At Hollywood, hey, some of y'all, I've heard you on the golf course. That ain't worshiping, amen. You're, 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 you're letting off oaths, but it ain't the kind of oaths that you need to be. Now say, so, well, I can worship God anywhere. And I've heard people say this very often. Well, and, and this, by the way, is one of the things when people get out of church that they always lean on. It's a crutch that they lean on. It's a, it's a lie that they go to comfort themselves in. They'll say, well, I don't have to go to church to worship God. You see, really, I can worship God anywhere. I can sit at home in the Lazy Boy, watch Rifleman and worship God there. I can go down to Home and Garden Show and I can worship God there. I can worship God anywhere. Can I ask you a question? Is that really biblical? Now, you'll hear people say it a lot, but that don't mean nothing. Is it really biblical? Is that the spirit and idea that we find in the Word of God? What I find when I read in the Old Testament, that God is not saying you can worship God everywhere. In fact, He's not saying you can worship God anywhere. He's saying you better be careful where you worship Him because there are some places that God won't tolerate and accept worship from. I tell you, it matters where we worship the Lord. It matters where we go to church. Now, I'll go ahead and tell you, I ain't preaching this message fuss at nobody because you're here tonight. You got it wrong. Text all those people that laid out and tell them preacher preached at them, all right? No, don't do that. But I will say this, that this modern-day spirit of, of flippancy, of casual attitude towards the house of God and our commitment towards it, that's not birthed of the Word of God. That's birth of the flesh of man. God warns the children of Israel here that there are some places that they shouldn't worship Him. There are some places that are not fit to worship God and that God has very distinct, deliberate desires and ideas about exactly where He wants His people being when they engage in worship with Him. Now, somebody's going to say, well, preacher, are you saying that I can't pray to the Lord when I'm out in nature? No, you can pray to the Lord. Uh, Somebody might say, well, preacher, are you telling me that if I found myself excluded, couldn't go to church anywhere, maybe I was laid up, I was sick, that God wouldn't meet with me? No, thank God that He can meet with us wherever we're at. But those are what we call extenuating circumstances. How about this? How about we be honest enough with each other to recognize I will recognize there are times when you can't make it to church if you'll acknowledge the fact that most of the time you probably can. There's going to be times you and I are providentially hindered. Hey, there's times that I'm providentially hindered. I I know I look like just the the utter epitome of physique and health. But I do get sick sometimes. Amen? Uh, There's probably times, I mean, hey, I take a vacation every year, maybe more than one. And I don't care if it hair lifts you or me or the devil or who. Amen? I don't think that's wrong. I thank you, Ken. I appreciate that amen that I got. That makes me feel good. I don't think that's wrong. There's times that things arrive in our life and things command our our attention. I think God understands that. There are extenuating circumstances. There are times when we are divinely, providentially hindered. But let's go ahead and admit along with that, most of us, we can be at church almost as much as we'd like to be. Most of the time. You see, what I find is that the extreme ends of the realm of this discussion are where the error often lies. If we were to say, well, there's never any excuse, there's never any reason that you can't, then we'd all have to admit, well, that's untrue. We can say that and wish it was so, but it's not. But by the same token, if we were to suggest that God has not given all of us the blessing and opportunity to be faithful to the house of God, we would be lying if we weren't acknowledging that as well. 
And so God commands His people. He says, you don't just go worship anywhere. You don't just go to church anywhere. There are certain places that you need to worship in. There are certain places that you shouldn't worship in. Let me say this along with it before I get into preaching. Hey, I'm thankful, man. There's a lot of good churches. There's a lot of good churches in this town. There's there's a lot of good churches in this country. There's more of them down here in the southeast than there is in most places in the world. Somebody say amen to that. But that don't mean every church is a good church. And that don't mean that every one of them is a place that a child of God ought to find themselves in. This idea that we ought to dismiss and disregard things that offend the holiness and the standards and the statutes of the Word of God and sit down and break common bread of fellowship with people that have no confidence in or respect for the truth of the Word of God, I don't find that anywhere in my Bible. And I'll tell you this, we better be careful. Let me say this to us raising kids. We better be careful. Hey, these years is precious. Amen? Now, I mean, I ain't, some of y'all old folks ain't grown yet either. We're still trying to get you raised. But particularly with the young people, where we have our kids and what we raise them under and what we expose them to, we better be careful because one day we're going to answer to God for it. He gives them several guidelines. You say, well, preacher, okay, I shouldn't go to church just anywhere. I shouldn't worship just anywhere. So where should I worship? Where does God instruct me to plant my family to serve the Lord? I see about four different qualities, four different thoughts in this passage. Let me share them with you, and then we'll be done tonight. Look at verse number 1. The Bible says this, These are the statutes and judgments which ye shall observe to do in the land which the Lord God of thy fathers giveth thee to possess it all the days that ye live upon the earth. So Moses says, this is what God expects out of you. These are the commandments that God has given. What's the first commandment he gives? He says, ye shall utterly destroy all the places wherein the nations which ye shall possess serve their gods, upon the high mountains and upon the hills and under every green tree. Ye shall overthrow their altars and break down their pillars and burn their groves with fire. And ye shall hew down the graven images of their gods and destroy the names of them out of that place. Ye shall not do so unto the Lord your God. So God says to Israel, one of these places, I'm going to put a, a, a habitation there. I'm going to put a temple there. I'm going to put my name there. One of these places in one of these tribes. Now, you and I know we have the benefit of hindsight. We know that it's Jerusalem, which, by the way, was a Canaanite stronghold. It was where the Jebusites were. And, and God's saying, one of these places, I'm going to put my name there. I'm going to meet with you there. That's going to be the place where you and I worship together. But he says, before we get there, you're going to have to go in and clean out all that mess that is in the land of Canaan. Could I say it this way? You say, preacher, where does God want me and my family worshiping? I would say, number one tonight, in a place of purity. You know what the number one standard should be for us in our lives in regards to, to where we serve the Lord? We ought to say, is it a place that is pure and is consecrated to the truth of the Word of God? You don't even have to pray about whether to go to a loose church. You already know. You don't have to pray about whether to go to a worldly church. When you are, are, are making choices and decisions for your family, the, the, the choice should not be, is it between this worldly church or this uh, church that reveres the Word of God? It should be, hey, here's a handful of places where they love the Word of God and they love the Bible and they, they, they crave the truth of God. And between those, which one is the place that God wants me to be? We need to be going to a place that is pure 
in the way that it conducts itself. I see two things here that are important. One, I see the place where God was going to call His name was a place where idols were torn down. It was a place where idolatry was not tolerated. It had to be a place where things that offended the righteousness of God were not permitted to exist. Now, can I go ahead and tell you something? Listen, there ain't a church you're going to walk into that is perfect, including ours, especially ours. None of y'all amen when I said that. Y'all must be guilty. Amen. It's clean now. That's it. Yeah. You know, like like surface-wise, clean. <laughs> there ain't a place you're going to go that's going to be perfect. And and if the, if the standard was perfection, we've already determined that none of us meets that standard and that we find perfection in Jesus Christ and Him alone. But that is not a reason to yield to the permissive spirit of our age and instead just cast away all standards altogether. We ought to commit in our hearts that we want to be in a place where sin and unrighteousness are not openly tolerated. Now, that doesn't mean that we ought to be the morality police running around and trying to be the Holy Ghost in everybody's life. I don't believe God's pleased with that. But it does mean that we should not be in a place where, uh, where areas of the Word of God are avoided because it might upset or offend somebody because of the way that they're living. No, we need to have more reverence for the Word of God than we have for one another. And we ought to have reverence and love for one another. But we ought to reverence the Word of God above all things. It was a place where idols were torn down. But then I like this. Look at what it says, verse 4. He says, ye shall not do so unto the Lord your God. He says, you need to draw a distinction between the way you view and treat the world and the way you view and treat the Lord. I would say this. It was a place where idols were torn down, but it was a place where ideals were held up. It was a place where they exterminated idolatry, but it was a place where they made a distinction between the holy and the profane. You know, we could use a Bible term, I think, for that, or we could use a term that, that we use associated with Bible terms, and it's the word standards. You know what a standard is, right? A standard is a way of saying something ought to be up to this level of integrity and this level of commitment and this level of devotion before we accept it as being an appropriate thing. We have standards in all kinds of things in life. I don't care what they are. I hope we do anyways, amen? Uh, the, somebody was talking the other day, I, the, I guess it was my brother, he was talking about eating at a restaurant in town. And uh, he went and ate there and he said, man, the food was good. He said, but it was just nasty. He said that the, the girl answering the phone was handling food, didn't have no gloves on. And, and you know, the, the girl that was taking money was handling food. You know how nasty money is and everything. He said, and, and the food was good. He said, but I'd never go back because of that. I said, well, you should have just ordered takeout. And you wouldn't have seen him do all that. Amen. I got a story that'd turn your stomach, but we'll just save that for fellowship time, won't we, Ken? Let's just say you better be careful about these buffet sushi places, all right? And then we'll talk later if you want to know more. Uh, we want the places we eat to have standards. We want, hey, listen, I wish Walmart would get some dress standards. Somebody say amen. There's some things you can't unsee, man. We don't mind there being standards in place, but then all of a sudden the term standard has become anathema in the house of God. If somebody says we have standards, that's viewed as some kind of negative, cold, uncompassionate, unchrist-like thing. Hey, the Lord had standards. And thank God that He did. What You say, what was Calvary all about? It was about God respecting His own standards. He could have just ignored your sin, been permissive to your sin, but you know how interested God is in His own holiness? 
So much so that he sent his son to die on the cross because he wouldn't compromise his standard of holiness. I'm saying this, that in our lives we need to be in a place that has standards. We need to be in a place where there's a distinction made between the things of God. Moses says to him, you're not going to go in there and try to make your worship like the worship of the world because that's not what God's desiring to do. He's desiring to change you, to redeem and rescue you from the influence of the world. Now, what kind of sense does it make to take the church of the living God and try to make it like the dens of iniquity of this world? So the first standard ought to be, hey, it's going to be a place of purity. Now, once that's settled and we say, well, preacher, it's a pure place. It's a, it's a righteous place. Well, then it becomes a matter of being a place of providence. Look what he says in verse number 5. He says, But unto the place which the Lord your God shall choose, out of all your tribes to put his name there, even unto his habitation shall ye seek, and thither thou shalt come. Can I just be really blunt with what God says here? You don't get to choose where you go to church. God gets to choose where you go to church. I've often told people throughout the years of pastoring when they're praying about the will of God and where God wants them to be, why people visit with us. They'll say, preacher, we're praying. We're, we're seeking God's will and God's mind. And I've often told them this, and I mean this from the bottom of my heart. Why well, will pray that God will lead you into His perfect will? Now, I'll tell you, God's not going to lead you to a loose place. God's not going to lead you to a, to a place of, of license and a place of wickedness and a place of lasciviousness. I mean, you know, if you're going to come to me and say, well, now, preacher, God led us to, to the liberal outfit down the road that don't believe we've got a Bible and, and don't believe that, that music ought to honor and consecrate uh, itself unto Christ and God led us down here. Hey, you might as well tell me God led you down to Cotton Eye Joe's. Amen? I, I Listen, I mean, you can say that to me and I probably won't be angry at you, but I ain't going to believe it. But uh, not only must it be a place that is clean and that is pure, that loves the Word of God, that upholds the standards of righteousness, but then once it is, it needs to be a place that God chooses. I'll tell you, the best place for your family or my family is in the heart and center of the will of God, wherever that might be. Uh, now, God's will is not going to lead us astray. It's not going to lead us into disobedience. But just because, and very often in your life, one of the pitfalls that the devil will set before you is not trying to get you to choose from, from good and from bad, but trying to get you to choose between the best and the second best. And can I tell you, one of the criteria that makes a place the best in our life is it is the place of God's choosing. I see the location that God decides. It's where He wants us to be, wherever that is. I can tell you that in my life, and though I was excited to come and to pastor this church, uh, I didn't take this church because it looked like a good opportunity. I didn't take this church because I loved the people or because they loved me. And I, I did love them and I trust they at least tolerated me. I, I didn't take it because it looked like, well, it was going to be a, a good platform and a good foundation for this. That, that. I tell you, there was one reason I took this church. I believed it to be the will of God. Twelve years later, I still believe. I, in fact, I believe it more now than I've ever believed it before that this place is the will of God for me and my family. That's why I'm here. I'm not here because there was an open pulpit or an open seat. I'm here because I believe that Wall Ridge is the will of God for me, for my wife, and for my boys. It was the place of God's choosing in my life. I see the location that God decides, but then notice the dedication that God deserves. Verse number 6, he says this, And thither ye shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices and your tithes and heave offerings of your hand and your vows and your freewill offerings and the firstlings of your herds and of your flocks. So in other words, if we believe it to be the place of God's will and God's choosing, you know what we ought to do? We ought to go all in on that place. He says, when I pick a place, that's going to be the place that you bring your tithes. That's going to be the place you bring your offerings. 
That's going to be the place that you bring your service. That's going to be the place that you bring your family. That's going to be the place that you bring your time. Can I say the way that God has designed this and envisioned it for the child of God is not that we be scattered in a thousand places, but that we find a place and it's the will of God for our family. And once that's confirmed in our heart and in our soul and in our mind, we dig in and let God use us in that place. Because if it is the place of God's choosing, then it is worthy of all that we are. If that's where God wants us, then it's worthy of all of our time, all of our treasures, all of our talents. It's worthy of the investment of our life. Very often when people struggle with that, it's because they're not confident and, and, and convinced that a place is the will of God. And if your perspective is, well, we just kind of feeling out and shopping around and trying to figure, hey, listen, everybody ought to be cautious in the decisions that they make in life. Me, you, everyone. We ought to pray through. We ought to seek the will of God. We ought to seek the mind of God. But once we have the mind of God, that period of time's over and we ought to go in full bore to serve the Lord in our life. I see that it was a place of providence. But then look at verse number 7 says this, and there ye shall eat before the Lord your God. I'll give you a chance to say amen to that if you want. Ye shall rejoice in all that ye put your hand unto, ye and your households, wherein the Lord thy God hath blessed thee. So it's a place of purity, a place where the word of God is revered, where sin is, is dealt with. It is a place where God is, is honored and a distinction is made between the holy and the profane. It's a place of providence, the place that God chooses for, for his name. But then I see it as a place of participation. He says, when you, when you get this place, that's going to be the place where you eat before the Lord your God. Now, I wish I could tell you this was just talking about fellowship and dinner on the ground. Wouldn't that, wouldn't that be fun? But that's not what it's talking about. Uh, oftentimes when they would offer a sacrifice or more particularly when they would observe feast days, it was a form and function of worship that they would gather around and partake in food at these feasts. And what he's saying is, when, I, when I've selected a place, when I've given a place for my name, that's going to be the place that you're going to go, be involved, be engaged with, and worship me. In other words, we need to be in a place where we can serve the Lord. God doesn't call any of us to be spectators. We are all to be servants. That doesn't mean that you'll serve in the same capacity or way that I serve. It doesn't mean that you'll do what, what this other person does. We, we all may be at a different place in our life in the ways that God uses us. But you can mark her down. God's not going to call you to a place where your only job is just to sit and keep a pew, a pew from flying off. God, God saves all of us and calls all of us to a place where we can serve the Lord. I see it as a place where we are faithfully participating. Notice what he says. There you shall eat before the Lord your God. We ought to be faithfully participating with our worship. We ought to be present. You know, as we said a moment ago, there are times everybody's providentially hindered. And certainly, listen, preacher ain't getting up fuss about church attendance on a Sunday night. Amen. If I was going to do that, I would have got that reprobate Sunday morning crowd this morning. <laughs> but I am saying we ought to recognize if it's the place of God's will, then it ought to be a place that we go and we feast on the Word of God and we worship, we fellowship with one another, it ought to be a place where we are faithful in the matter of worship. Not only with your worship, but with your words. He says, ye shall rejoice. He's talking about giving testimonies. He's talking about being actively engaged in the process of worship. And let me say that we ought to be faithful in the house of God, not just to be there, but to be there. You know what I mean? Listen, it's one thing just to be there. But it's another thing to be there. I'm talking about worshiping. I'm talking about singing. I'm talking about testifying. I'm talking about being actively engaged with the process of worship in the house of God. He says, you ought to go in. You ought to rejoice. You ought to shout. You ought to sing praise 
to the Lord. And then not only with our words, but with our works. He says, in all that you put your hand unto. The hand is the, is the uh, agent of change and of activity in our life. Oftentimes in the Word of God, when it talks about a hand, it's talking about what a person does and what a person changes, how they manipulate things in their life. What it's saying is this, that the house of God ought to be a place that you put your hand to the plow and labor and work. So in other words, it ought to be a place that we are not just faithful to, but faithful in. Listen, I want you to be faithful to the house of God, but it don't do a lot of good if you're faithful to it and you're not faithful in it. It's more than just being present. Hey, listen, we, we could, for the, for the operating costs of the church, we could go hire uh, 200 homeless people to come sit in pews for two hours a week. It'd be a lot cheaper, amen? Uh, it's not just about putting bodies in pews. It's about seeing God work and carry out the work of a New Testament church in the life of the people that are a part of Walridge Baptist Church. So we see that, that we ought to be, it ought to be a place where we are faithfully participating. Then he says this, ye and your households. Isn't that interesting? The Holy Ghost goes out of his way to say that. In other words, he's laying emphasis to the fact that this thing of worship is not just an individual's experience, but it is a family experience. If God has given us a household, if he's given us a family, then we ought to be in a place where not just we can serve God, but we can serve God with our family. One of the things we've desired to do at Wall Ridge, and I'm sure we haven't done it to perfection, but we have desired, you know, we have things for the kids. And I, I think that's a good thing, amen? We, we have uh, services for the kids and activities for the kids, but we have limited. There's some places where once you show up and drop your kid off, you ain't going to see him for two and a half weeks after that. I mean, you ain't gonna, you're not going to cross paths with him again. Listen, we could. We could have a children's service every single moment of every waking day, cloister them away, try to keep them out of the, uh, out of the sanctuary. Wouldn't have to have a cleaning day as often if we did. Somebody say amen. Although I think it's some of y'all leaving those soggy sucker sticks in the, in the hymn holders. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna name names. I'm gonna let the Holy Ghost do that in your heart, but you're saying some of y'all, there ain't no kids sit where you are. <laughs> In other words, hey, listen, it ought to be, we need at the house of God, it needs to be a place where we're not just serving by compartmentalizing people away in their own little niche and unique episodes and aspects of ministry, but it ought to be a place where families serve the Lord together. While there's certainly nothing wrong with having opportunities to give a focus to a particular demographic or age group or, or, or people with a certain life experience, I think there's a great danger in atomizing the house of God and making it simply like a big box store where everybody can show up and find something for them. It ought to be a place where we go as a family. You and your spouse, you and your children, uh, you and the Holy Ghost, amen, show up and serve God collectively together. We see that it's a place where your family should be participating. But then I would say this, it ought to be a place where you are fruitfully participating. He says, wherein the Lord thy God hath blessed thee. Boy, I tell you, there's places you can go and, and sit and you will never be needed. That's the truth. There's places you can go and sit and you will never be needed. For one of two reasons. One, because they're either not doing anything. Or two, because they have so many people that you'd have to sign up and wait five years to get an opportunity in the first place. I, I think that in the house of God, and I, I don't think, and I want to be careful how I say this, I mean, I, I don't, listen, I, I don't know what that number is, you know, that's too many. I, I don't know what that size is that's too big. I expect it's like getting old. You know, what's old? Old's ten years older than you are, right? 
Like Brother Kerry's old to me now, today. He's old to me. Um, and, and, and one of these days, in 20 years, I'll be where he's at. And then it won't seem old. But right now, it just seems old to me. And I expect when you're talking about church and attendance and numbers and stuff, I, you say, preacher, how big is too big? Probably about 50 more people than the church has. That's too big, you know. Whatever that number is, that's too big. But I would say this, that there can be, there can be a danger of people's association with the house of God being, people need to be needed. They need to be leaned into and counted on. And there is a danger when we are, find ourselves in an environment where what we do for the Lord really doesn't matter whether it's done or not. We ought to be serving in a place where we are meaningfully fruitfully being used of God. Now, sometimes that may mean doing something that is not what you desire to do. There may be times that you show up and say, Preacher, I want to be used of God. And the way God needs you is not the way you wish that you were needed. But you ought to be serving in a place where what you're doing matters. Not measured by the numbers of people in pews. Not measured by the applause and accolades and appreciation of men. But measured by the fact that if you weren't doing it, it wouldn't get done. And God's using it in somebody's life. I, I would say that, that we need to be in a place where we are fruitfully participating. But then there's a final thought and I'll be done tonight. So what kind of place do we need to be in? And, and I, want, I, I hope and trust that Walridge is this kind of place. I, that it's a place of purity. A place where, where sin is not treated lightly. Where God is doing things in people's lives. I trust that, that for those that are members that it's a place of God's providence that you joined and, and you're a part of it because you believe it to be the place of the will of God and, and uh, that, that you're serving the Lord right where He wants you to be. A place of participation where you're serving God actively and living a life that is meaningful and makes a difference for Him. But then I would say this, it needs to be a place of provoking. Look what it says in verse number 8. Moses says, ye shall not do after all the things that we do here this day. Every man whatsoever is right in his own eyes. Now, what does Moses mean when he says that? He explains it in verse 9. For ye are not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance which the Lord your God giveth you. But when ye go over Jordan and dwell in the land which the Lord your God giveth you to inherit, and when he giveth you rest from all your enemies round about so that ye dwell in safety... Then there shall be a place which the Lord your God shall choose to cause His name to dwell there. Thither shall ye bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the heave offering of your hand, and all your choice vows which ye vow unto the Lord. Now here is the situation as they were traveling through the wilderness. They had the tabernacle, the tent that was used as a place to worship the Lord. And, and during that time, there would be seasons and occasions. You find provisions for this in the Old Testament law when they may not be able to keep the Passover on exactly the 14th day of the month of it. They might not be able to keep the, the, the Feast of Tabernacles on the exact right day. Times when they may have to, to sort of bend a little bit with their circumstances. And Moses is saying, that's been fine for the past 40 years. We've just been sort of doing whatsoever was right in our own eyes. But now we're coming to a place and God's going to plant His name there. And in that place, we're going to be called to a higher standard. And we're not going to be able to tell God we'll, we'll do it when we get around to it. Now we're going to have to shape and mold our schedule around God's schedule. Now we're going to be held accountable for these things. And it's not going to be about what's convenient for us. It's going to be about what's consecrating for Him. I would say this, that we need to be in a place that provokes us about some things. 
Part of the problem in modern day Christianity as CEOs have taken over pulpits all over this country is that there has been this spirit of, of commercialism that has arrested the house of God. Where decisions are made through focus groups and, and polls and, and collection cards about what people really want. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. If it's something that I don't care about and that God don't care about, I don't mind for you to get your way. Amen? Y'all don't know how to take what I just said. If we're choosing between roast beef and chicken, and God don't have an opinion, although I think God is pro-roast beef, but if God don't have an opinion, and I don't have an opinion, then of course, the house, you know, I, it doesn't matter to me. Uh, the, the house of God should not be the place that is subject to the whims of any one person, meaning me or you. It ought to be a place where God is honored, where His will and way is done, and then it ought to be a place where subject to the biblical pattern of New Testament leadership, where the pastor has jurisdiction and, and authority over matters in the church, but he desires not to be lording over God's flock, but to be an ensample unto them, and so the desires of the people are acknowledged and respected inasmuch as they don't trespass either upon the authority of the pastor or upon the holiness of God. I think that's biblical. I think that's appropriate. Instead, we have created this scenario where everything is subject to market-driven research. And you know what it has conditioned people to believe? That the house of God is a place where you ought to have it your way all the time. That the sole purpose of the house of God is to appease the desires of the masses. i got news for you. Listen, there's somebody here that's more important than you, and there's somebody here that's more important than me, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who matters above all things. And so it is appropriate that as we serve God in the local church, we ought to be in a place that is not crafted to gratify our own desires. But instead, if we're to be biblical, the Bible is not about self-gratification. The Bible is about self-denial. We ought to be in a place that is not letting us do any and everything we want to do, but we ought to be in a place that's saying, here's what God expects out of your life, and here's what God requires from you. Moses says, heretofore you've been able to do what's right in your own eyes. But we're about to have a church now. I know it wasn't a church. I know it was a temple, but it was a place of worship. And he says, and because of that, the time when we're just doing what's right in our own eyes is over. We need to be doing what is right in the eyes of the Lord. There ought to be times, man, when the preaching tramples on us. There ought to be times when, when, when the Word of God, uh, like a heat-seeking missile, zeroes in on that very thing in our life and drives home, and God comes in and messes up every plan that we thought we had. There ought to be times when the house of God provokes us to self-denial. Times when we're not happy about what we've heard, but we can't deny that it's the truth of God. He says, you ain't going to be able to do just anything you want because it ain't about you. It's about the Lord. And as such, it ought to be a place where you are provoked to have to go to a higher standard. It ought not to be a place where we're lowering standards to make the tent bigger. It ought to be a place where we are observing the standards of the Word of God because our goal is not to make the tent bigger, it's to make the heart of God gladder. And it ought to be a place of, of, of where, where there's times, man, that we're provoked, times when we are charged and challenged that it ain't about us, it's about the Lord, and times in our life when self-denial is, is, is charged to our account. Through the preaching. So it ought to be a place where we are provoked to self-denial. And then look at verse 12, and I'll be done. He says, And ye shall rejoice before the Lord your God, ye and your sons and your daughters and your men servants and your maidservants 
and the Levite that is within your gates, forasmuch as he hath no part nor inheritance with you. God goes down the list and he names everybody that might be in the household. Now, he's already said earlier that they can serve the Lord ye in your household, right? Back in verse number 7. But now he goes through and he names every single person that might be in the household. What is he doing? He's saying this. One of these days we're going to have a place, a temple. I'm going to call my name there. And when that day comes, you ain't going to just do anything that you want. You ain't going to live loose. You ain't going to have loose standards. Instead, you're going to come to this place at the appointed times. And when you get there, you're going to serve the Lord. But not just you, your wife, your children, your servants, the Levite that dwells with you. Everybody's going to serve God. In other words, we could say this. It ought to be a place that provokes us to self-denial. That's not for the gratification of our flesh and our desires. But it ought to be a place that provokes us to serve God diligently. I'll tell you, there's a lot of churches dying in our day because they have reached that symbiotic point where they have learned to not exert any more energy in their life than is basically fundamentally necessary to maintain the status quo. They know how much tithes need to be paid to pay the KUB bill each month. And they make sure that many's paid. They, they know just exactly how many people they need in the church to carry out what basic functions have to carry out. And they have found that point and they have slid into a comfort zone and they are just now waiting for death, spiritual death, to finally bury that church. Wise man once told me there's three kinds of pastors in this world. There are men that are caretakers. Uh, there are men that are risk takers. And there are men that are undertakers. <laughs> and in our churches, it ought to be that we are in a, in a, in a church, in a place where we're not allowed to just rest on our laurels, to just slip into complacency. i tell you, part of the problem, and again, I don't know what that number is. I'm not anti-big church, whatever a big church is. There's people who call our church a big church. There's people that wouldn't even call what we do church. Amen. But, but part of the dangers in big churches, people go to them because it's a good place to hide. You can go in. Nobody ever knows whether you actually go there or not. You might be some rando person that walked in off the street. And chances are nobody's going to ever ask you to do anything because there's already 700 other people waiting in line to do it. And you can just sit as a spectator and coast through and never have to do anything that makes you uncomfortable for Christ. We ought to be in a place where we are provoked. Where, where And I know sometimes you say, Preacher, sometimes it just feels like it's never enough. Right, right. Now you're getting it. Preacher, sometimes it just feels like church is just always asking for more. Now you're getting it. Now you're understanding it. The moment we're not striving for more is the moment that we've given up. We ought to always be pressing forward, doing more for Christ, going deeper for Christ, doing greater things for Christ. The moment that we have reached that place of complacency where we say, well, I've got everything nice and balanced and penciled in. I've got a little, little section of my calendar of my week over here for God, and that's good and everything. That's the moment you have already started down that downward trend of your spiritual life drying up on the vine. We need to constantly be being pressed. I remember years ago when I was a youth pastor, I had a deliberate goal in my heart and mind. I always tried to preach about a half inch higher than the intellect of the kids that I was preaching to. I intentionally tried to preach things that, that I would expect would be just, just a hair above what should be appropriate age-wise, I'm talking about intellectual-wise, not appropriate as far as content, but appropriate as far as, as mental age comprehension-wise for them, to keep them constantly stretching and growing in their walk with the Lord. And in our life, we ought to be constantly being pressed to do more 
for Christ. There's going to be times you're going to feel like, well, preacher, I'm just, I'm stretched too thin. Good. Good. You're probably about to the place where you'll quit doing it in your own strength and let God start really doing something in your life. You remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians chapter 1? Talks about the time that we were, they were in Asia. And he says we were pressed above strength, out of measure. He said we found in ourselves the sentence of death. He said, we realized if we kept living that way and serving that way, we was going to die. Then he says this, uh, that God allowed the sentence of death in them that they might put their faith in God, which raiseth the dead. Uh, you'll hear this all the time. People will say, well, God ain't never going to put more on you than what you can bear. I don't know who started that, but I, if they're in heaven when I get there, I'm going to hit them right in the mouth. There ain't an ounce of that that's Bible. God, in fact, expressly puts more on you than you can bear. He deliberately puts more on you than you can bear. You know why He does that? To get you to not trust in you, but to trust in Him. But modern day Christianity has reached this point where all it's about is keeping only on us what we ourselves can bear. No, we ought to be constantly pressed to be doing more for Jesus Christ. We ought to be in a place that provokes us. It doesn't allow us to just, to just slip into complacency. Can I tell you something? Some of this depends on how willing you are to let God do that work in your life. I know enough pastors, I know enough good men that have churches exactly like what I just described. And it's not because they ain't preaching. It's because people just refuse to let God do that work in their life. I'll tell you something, and I'm not everything that I ought to be. I'm not even an ounce of what I should be. But despite my greatest efforts, if you're not willing yourself to hold yourself to that standard, there's no amount of preaching that I can do that can make you that way. I can get up, I can fuss at you, I can snort, I can stomp, I can spit gum at you, and it's not going to make you that way. You have to choose that mediocrity is not enough for your spiritual life. You have to make up your mind that the status quo does not suffice. That you want more in your Christianity. You don't want to just be a spectator. You don't want to just come and, and fly under the radar and slip on through. But you want God to do something great in your life. You have to make that choice. I wish I could make it for you. Oh, it'd be a lot easier if I could just make that choice. But I can't make it for you. I've learned you have to make that decision. And so here's the reality. You might be in a place, and I believe you are, you might be in a place that is all those things that we talked about and still not see the result of what God desires for your life. And the problem is not that you're in a place that's impure. I don't believe that you are. The problem may not be that you're in a place that, that you're not there by providence. If you tell me that you, you prayed and you sought the will of God, I take your word at that. I trust that that's true. You might be in a place where there's plenty of opportunity to participate. And you're in a place, I'll tell you this tonight, because I didn't enjoy this message no more than you did. Amen? Y'all didn't know what to say to that. <laughs> no, I enjoyed it. I have fun whether you like it or not. And uh, But you're, you might be in a place where you're provoked unto, unto serving the Lord diligently, unto self You might be in all those things. But that doesn't mean that you're going to reap the benefits of it. You and you alone can and has to make that choice that that's the experience of church life and of Bible Christianity that you desire. And if you will make that decision, I promise you this, you will see your spiritual life grow and develop and be more of what God intends for it to be. So I'd say along with Moses, hey, take heed that you, that, that you offer not your burnt offerings just anywhere. There's a lot of places that will take your burnt offerings, but you ought to desire to offer those burnt offerings in the place of God's choosing, where God is glorified and where God is working. Let's pray together tonight as a musician comes to the piano. The altar's open. I, I don't know. I don't know what God may have done in your heart this evening.
I, I bet that there's probably some who saw a definitive line drawn in the sand of their life and have a choice that they have to make about what they're going to do and how they're going to live their life, what they expect and desire out of their experience with church life. There might be some that God settled some things in your heart tonight. I, I hope and pray, trust that might be. Or there might be some that God just, just provoked you, that status quo is not enough, that you don't want your life just to be a, a an example of mediocrity, but for it to be a life that's lived, committed, consecrated to the Lord. I, I trust and hope and ask that you do business with God tonight. Let Him have His will and way. Father, bless this invitation. We ask it in Christ's name. With our heads bowed, our eyes closed, Melissa's playing. The altar's open tonight. Meet the Lord in the altar. Let Him have His will and His way.